Heavenly Father, so many things this morning, Father, to be thankful for. And as we open in prayer, we always want to put a thankfulness at the forefront of our mind, remembering all that you are doing, even as we may concern ourselves with what has not happened and what we want to see. But for all the things that have been said, Father, for all that we could say, nothing would be more important than a thankfulness and an acknowledgement of the gift you've given us in your word, in the word made flesh, and in the word written, so that we might know the things that have been freely given to us in Christ, that we might be encouraged to walk in the light that is the lamp of the word, and that we might honor you according to your will, knowing it fully by how it's revealed. We ask that you would turn our attention, Father, to the important things Paul gave us in this letter. We would hear these words spoken to us, and we would ask the question, what are we to do with what we learned this morning? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we opened last week in the letter of Corinth. Uh, last week, as we introduced the letter, we saw Paul telling the church he had heard all this troubling news about what they were doing and what they were thinking. And they were to understand things the way they had been taught, to remember what he taught, that they were one body, that they were equally blessed, they were equally gifted, equally equipped. Paul tells them that by their faith in Christ, they were found blameless and would be forever blameless in the day of the Lord. That because of faith alone, they were that way. But yet, despite what they had been taught, they were dividing themselves in harmful ways. And in particular, he says they were trying to make something of who led them to the Lord, whether it be Paul or Apollos or Peter, Cephas, as he calls them. Each of those men, each of those evangelists were found to have their respective following in this church. And yet there were still some who were saying they were of Christ. So there were at least some in the church who knew the, the big picture. But in the letter, as we opened last week, Paul begins to admonish this church for their immaturity and their pride. They are immature and they are prideful. And those things go hand in hand. This is maybe the earliest example we have of celebrity culture in the church. Celebrityism. Taking our eyes off Jesus and redirecting our attention to men and in some cases to women. And in particular, to those who call us into the faith or instruct us in the faith or serve us in the faith. It, it becomes an idol of sorts. When we take somebody and we make that creature more important to us in our focus than the creator. You all know a man named Chuck Colson, Pastor Chuck Colson. He's famous for two things, for going to prison as part of the Watergate scandal and for becoming a Christian with a powerful prison ministry as a result and a pastor as well and a, a preaching ministry. And he wrote a book about celebrityism in the church, the problem of celebrities. And I'll just quote you one thing he said. He said, the cult of celebrity has seeped into our sanctuaries like the culture around us. Churches too often reward the sizzle and not the steak. Too many people in the pews would rather have a celebrity in the pulpit instead of a good shepherd of souls, a good servant leader. Not surprisingly, some pastors, certainly not the majority, but some have become addicted to all that adulation, and they try to live up to the idol that we have made of them. Or worse, all the celebrity worship can make a pastor feel that they are above criticism and accountability. Their work for the Lord turns toxic. Like many pop celebrities, they can focus ultimately on self-aggrandizement, not on serving others. His words ring true, don't they? Both in our ears and in our experience. 
Paul's worried about the very same thing in this church, in this young, impressionable, immature church. He's worried that they've started to run towards celebrityism instead of keeping their eyes on Christ. And in chapter one, he reflected on something as we finished last week. He reflected on the fact that he had not baptized many of these. He said in chapter one, verses 14 and 15, he said, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Can you imagine anyone today saying, I am so thankful I haven't had to baptize anybody. But in context, what he's saying is that he was so determined to keep the church's gaze squarely on Christ that he was thankful that he didn't end up baptizing them, which would have led them to feel a cult of celebrity all the more for him. To have been that much more enamored with him instead of Christ. I want you to remember Paul's words as we come back into the text this morning. I want you to remember this example. Anytime you happen to receive someone's praise or thanks for your service to them in the name of Christ. I want you to remember what Paul said here. Let's be vigilant to avoid drawing someone's attention off of Christ and onto us. Receiving thanks and encouraging words is fine. And in many cases it's helpful. It, it can encourage us onward. That's good. Don't let that moan of thanks or appreciation turn into adulation and celebrityism because it's addictive, as Chuck Colson said. It is enticing to us, to all of us, that people start to think that we are their gateway to the Lord at some level. But Paul is just getting warmed up. He is just starting on this course of discussion. He knows that these bad behaviors are symptoms of a greater problem. And so he begins to address that greater problem in verse 17. That's where we pick up. I think given how much time we spend in Genesis, it's probably worth a reminder that there's a big difference in studying historical narratives like Genesis and epistles like this one. There's a simple little mnemonic reminder you can use for your own sake to keep the, the purpose of Scripture in mind. The Old Testament is Christ predicted. And then the Gospels are Christ revealed, Christ on the center stage. And then the letters, the epistles, are Christ explained. So that we can understand the depths of what he is, who he is, and what he's done. And then Revelation is Christ anticipated. His return. So in the letters, we're looking at Christ explained. I cannot take the depth of what Paul has given and do it any sense of justice if we zoom through it like you might on a historical narrative where the scope is larger and where the, the discussion has to encompass more text to get the full sense of what God is at work doing. Here it's, it's line by line more so. So we're going to read one verse for the opening today, chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul is explaining here his, his happiness at not having baptized many in this church. He begins by saying he wasn't sent by Jesus to baptize, but rather to preach the gospel. Now, he's speaking here with a sense of sarcasm. We can't get this straight if we don't understand the tone. There is a bit of exaggeration here and a bit of sarcasm to his words. Clearly, and we know this from elsewhere in Scripture, clearly baptizing new believers is an important and necessary and honoring function for those who lead in the body of Christ. There is no doubt that Paul performed many baptisms over the course of his ministry. So don't get it in your mind that Paul is somehow distancing himself from this behavior and saying, you know what, I'm above that. You know, baptism, that's for other people. No, that's not his point. Not in the general sense. What Paul is saying here is that by comparison, the work of baptism 
and the work of preaching the gospel. In that comparison, there is no comparison. There's no way to equate one to the other because baptizing believers is something that depends on the gospel. It's a step of obedience and it's an important one. We want people to be baptized because Christ commanded it. But that step is nothing in the absence of faith. It's just getting wet. And faith depends, as God has designed it, on the presentation of the gospel. You could say that a wedding reception is a wonderful thing, but it means nothing without the wedding. And similarly, Paul is saying, if what you care about is who baptized you, I'm glad I didn't do much of it. Because it's not what matters. Not in this sense. God has designed the process of baptism in an interesting way. Think about it for a minute. You cannot baptize yourself. You can't. Not if you're going to do it the scriptural way. Because while you're under the water, someone's got to be saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can't do that to yourself when you're underwater. It doesn't work. And it's not supposed to work. Because the fact of how God designed it is intended to bring two people together into the body so that the body is functioning. It's not a solo game. It's not a solo event. And baptism demonstrates that, among other things. But when that event occurs, by the nature of how it's designed, it inevitably begins to create a connection, a spiritual connection, between the person being baptized and the one who's doing it. And that's not a bad thing. It's healthy when it's kept in its proper perspective. But because baptism has that quality to it, it's a community event. Paul says, I wasn't commissioned by Christ to go develop those kinds of human bonds, to show up in town and baptize a bunch of people. That's not my commission. I'm called to lay the foundation that makes baptism possible to preach the gospel. But now preaching the gospel brings its own kind of trap. When you hear the gospel preached from someone's mouth and you come to faith as a result of that preaching, it is also typically the case that you have some particular affinity for that person. I can't tell you how many people will say that when they give their testimony, they talk about who was the one teaching or who was the person preaching or which Bible track or which ministry brought them the gospel. It's an inevitable association. We remember that, many of us do. And we may develop a bit of a soft spot in our heart for the man or woman that God used to bring us to faith. Now, once again, that's not a bad thing. Unless... It has the effect of drawing a stronger bond with that human being than the one from Christ. And Paul wanted this church to be utterly clear on one fact above all others, that he deserved no credit for their faith. None whatsoever. Look, folks, if the Apostle Paul gets no credit for the emergence of faith in the church at Corinth, how can we claim anything in the life of anyone? I mean, I would love to think that when I come to before the Lord in my day of judgment, I'll hear a testimony from the Lord about how many men or women have come to faith because of something God gave me the chance to do in ministry. I'm hoping for that. But if I think it's about me, Paul will say, I am making the cross of Christ void. And Paul says, and this is this is foundational truth in Scripture for us to understand. Paul says the Lord has crafted the message of the gospel in such a way that no human being will ever be able to claim that their salvation came as a result of the oratory power of another person. Look at the second half of verse 17. Paul says he did not arrive with clever words. And he's speaking, of course, to his arrival in Corinth. When there was no one on the land there, no one in the city who knew the Lord. Paul came into a city that was completely absent the gospel. And he says, if you will remember 
I did not come in cleverness of speech or with clever words. The Greek word, therefore, clever is Sophia. It literally means human wisdom. We get another word from that, sophistry, which is a word that means to deceive with speech. And then the word words in Greek is logos, which is simply the spoken word. I did not come with speaking human wisdom. Paul says his preaching of the gospel did lead men and women to faith in Corinth, but the message didn't succeed because Paul had convincing argument in normal human experience. If a man's speaking causes someone to do or think differently, we credit the speaker, do we not? I mean, that's how it's supposed to work, we think. Paul is saying that's not true in the case of the gospel. Paul was not crafty in his arguments. Paul didn't rely on perfect illustrations. He didn't have poignant stories. He didn't have great jokes like me. He didn't rationalize away. He didn't rationalize away their objections. You know, it wasn't about Paul's oratory. He simply presented the truth of Jesus Christ living, dying and resurrected. So those in Corinth who came to faith under Paul's influence and under his preaching were not permitted, according to Paul, to say that their faith was of Paul or Apollos or anyone else. If they did that, Paul says, and this is the crux of his argument, he said, if you could go out into this world and claim that, thank goodness, Paul came to Corinth, because if it had been anybody else, I doubt I would have believed. If you try to say that, Paul says, you are making the cross of Christ Void. No one in Corinth stood in the grace of Christ because Paul convinced them the reality was different. Now, this is theologically maybe one of the most important verses of the New Testament. You might be able to find a few that are more important, but not many than this verse of Scripture. That's why we're spending a minute or two on it. Paul teaches we are saved by the word of the cross of Christ. What is the word of the cross? Well, simply put, It's the gospel message, which is itself a simple one, that there was one day in history, a day in which the creator of all things put himself on a Roman cross, an instrument of execution, and he died in our place. And his death was a payment for our sin. And nothing else but that one payment has the power to save you from the judgment that will come to all who are in sin. That's the story of the gospel. Either you accept that story, the cross of Christ, or you look forward to eternal judgment. That's what Paul preached. Now, Paul says, if it were possible that you or I could be reconciled to God in some other way, then that story, which he calls the word of the cross, that story is made void. The word void simply means to declare something empty or to declare it without effect. Untrue, in other words. So as an evangelist, Paul says, if it were true that you could have come to faith on the power of my oratory or my persuasion, that would be tantamount to saying that you don't need the gospel. You just need a good argument. You don't need the Christ on the cross. You just need someone who has the power of persuasion to reconcile you to God. You've made the whole gospel message void. If that's true, if you are of Apollos or of Paul, we don't need the cross. There's two ways this can happen from the point of view of the preacher or from the point of view of the receiver. As the preacher, as the evangelist, he could have come in and substituted a more appealing message. And there are plenty of messages I could offer you that are a lot more appealing than the one that comes in the gospel. He could have shown up with uh, court gestures, liven the crowd up, warm them up a little bit. 
He could have offered to make them laugh for a while. Or then in the message, he could have said, I have a way for you to be rich. Or I have a message that will heal everyone who listens to it. You got something wrong with you? Come to me. I can heal you. In other words, he could have found some effective marketing method to draw the right audience to the right message, link the two up and had immediate acceptance. That's how the messenger can make the cross of Christ void by dressing up the message, altering it, moving it in a direction that appeals to the flesh on the hope that it will get that many more converts. And it will. I like to tell people that there's really no mystery about how to make people want what you're offering. We do this so easily. We've done it for history. I mean, for example, they could fill a whole coliseum in Paul's day by simply having people eaten by lions. People love that. Today we fill football stadiums because we give them football. People love that. And a little beer doesn't hurt, right? In other words, there's no mystery on how you attract people to an event. Give them what they want. That's not the message of the gospel. We make it void when we substitute a different message. And then as the recipients of grace, we can render the message of the cross void as well by attributing our conversion in the faith to someone or something else other than to the word of the cross. We can claim we heard the right preacher. Thank goodness we got Steve in this church. I never would have been a Christian. Nonsense. Or we claim we saw the right drama presentation. You know, if that church hadn't dressed up the gospel with that poignant drama at the end, I don't think I would have been listening long enough to hear the gospel. Nonsense. Or I'm glad I saw that movie Mel Gibson made. I don't think I ever would have believed in the gospel if it hadn't been for his movie. Nonsense. We received the right Bible track. Thank goodness for XYZ ministry and their Bible track ministry. I don't think I ever would have come to the faith if they hadn't put that in my hand as I walked down the street. Nonsense. You're making the cross of Christ void. Well, I'm glad I belong to that denomination. They at least teach the Bible. Or I'm glad I was born to the right family. Anything that you attribute in the creation to your salvation is making the cross of Christ void, according to Paul. Because if it were possible for anything else to bring you to repentance and to faith in the true living God, then it stands to reason the father would have used it instead of killing his only begotten son. So as to suggest that someone is of Paul, meaning that they were in the faith because of the work or the efforts of Paul, is to say, I didn't need anything but Paul. And I know that for some, we might be thinking at this point, yes, Steve, but you're really describing the mechanism by which God delivers us the truth of the cross. True, God uses mechanisms. He uses the mouth of preachers. He uses the printed word. He may use drama. He may use movies. Those things are fine as delivery mechanisms. But at the end of it all, when faith is brought to the heart, where do we trace that event to? We don't stop at the delivery mechanism. We go past that and we go to the author and the perfecter of our faith. And that message is the cross. The cross. Notice Paul says Christ did not send him to preach in cleverness of speech. I like the way he puts that. He says the Lord specifically told me not to dress this up. Don't come to Corinth, Paul, with a three-ring circus and a 70-piece orchestra and a laser light show. That's what I want you to not do. I want you to go in weakness. I want you to go with a message that is contrary to what people want to hear. The Lord has never asked any of us, including Paul, to find a better way to evangelize. God is not interested in our improvement methodology. He's not asking us to innovate on the gospel. There's been no attempt in any part of scripture I've found where God says, I need your help on this. What it says instead is, you need my help. And the message I have designed from the beginning is the message of the cross.
When we get that backwards, we make the cross of Christ void, Paul says. Folks, are people going to be offended when you preach the gospel? Of course they are. That's the whole point. They're offended at their own pride and sinfulness. They're offended at the notion that they have to subject themselves to to a judge who will judge them one day. Let that do its work. You soften that, you take the power away. So to stop prideful men from claiming that they were ever saved by the power of persuasion or of some other method, Paul says the Lord designed the gospel message to be foolish. He literally authored it in such a way that he knew it would sound foolish. Look what Paul says in verses 18 and 19. He says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. To understand what Paul's saying, we have to take this statement apart and look at it in a couple of sections. The first section, Paul says, the word of the cross is foolishness. Now, how can the message that saved you and I be considered foolish? As a believer, I, I doubt anyone in here has ever considered the gospel that they have placed their hope and faith and trust in to be foolish. Have you ever really felt that way about the message that you've embraced? I mean, I think most believers would say, when I think about what God did for me in Christ, it's the most awesome, beautiful truth I could ever imagine. It brought me to my knees. It brought me to an exaltation in his name. It's taken all the fear and doubt off my mind. It's given me a hope for the future. How can any of that be foolish? And that's natural. That's what believers are supposed to understand. But I want you to put yourself back in a mindset you may have had in the past when when you were not yet a believer, as, as I can remember. And I want you to consider what the gospel literally is claiming. I want you to think about it as objectively as you can. Here's what the message of the gospel says to the world. That there was a day when a poor, wandering Jewish man, a rabbi, a guy who lived 2,000 plus years ago, he promised that when you die, you would be welcomed into heaven with him. That was his promise to the world. But only after a few years of walking around saying this, He was convicted as a criminal by the Romans and he was executed and died. So here's the message we offer the world. The world now is being told that a man who seemed powerless to stop his own death is somehow the secret to us conquering death ourselves. That's it. Put your hope in that and you'll be fine. It absolutely sounds foolish to anyone who thinks about it objectively. It makes no sense. Now, understand, I didn't give the full depth of its understanding. I didn't talk about substitutionary atonement, propitiation. I didn't give all of that with it, I know. But you don't give all of that when you preach the gospel. Do you think in a street corner moment you're going to be able to stop someone and say, let me talk to you about propitiation? You're, you're lucky if you get the word Jesus out of your mouth, right? And if they've heard the gospel, their immediate thought is, there's that stupid stuff again. But then Paul qualifies his statement. Yes, it's foolish, but the message of the gospel is foolishness to some. But not to all. It's foolish, he says, to those who are perishing. Now, the phrase are perishing is written in the Greek present tense and in the middle voice, which is a voice we do not have in English. And the present is a continuing action. It's something that's continuously true. And then the middle voice in Greek, this is when the subject and the object of the sentence are both the receiver and the deliverer of that action. It's sort of a difficult thing to explain because we don't have this voice in English. So the one who sees the message of the gospel as foolishness is in a continuing state of jeopardy, of perishing, 
for as long as they hold this view. So they are both the subject and the object of their perishing. They are the cause of their perishing and they are also subject to that perishing because of the way the gospel is foolishness to them. Their unbelief is the cause of their perishing. And as long as their unbelief remains, so will their perishing because one is connected to the other. So if God has designed a message that will always be foolish to the unbelieving world, always sounds foolish. And for as long as it remains such for them, they will be perishing. And yet. The only way to escape that cycle is to stop seeing it as foolish. How does anyone get out of that cycle? Why did God create a message of salvation in such a fashion that no one would receive it? Why didn't he design it in a different way? Because it seems clearly evident that he could have. He could have done anything he wanted. Why didn't he have a salvation message that was compelling, that was self-evidently convincing? You know, sort of like two plus two. How hard do you have to argue someone that two plus two is equal to four? Once you explain it, they'll get it. That brings us to the last part of verse 18. Paul says, for the one being saved, the foolish message becomes truth. The Greek verb there for being saved, exactly the same Greek voice as the one for perishing. So the same kind of comparison is true. This second group is one that's continuously in a state of salvation Because it has this acceptance of this message. So when someone comes to accept this foolish message about Jesus dying, etc., that is spiritual truth for them. And they are then moved out of a state of perishing into a state of saving, of being saved. All right, now that should beg a huge question for everyone. When someone comes to accept a foolish message, how did that happen? What created the, the moment? What is the catalyst To move someone from a state of perpetual perishing as a result of perpetual unbelief in a foolish message to a state in which that same foolish message suddenly becomes truth, suddenly becomes compelling and convincing. Paul gives us the answer at the end of verse 18. He said, it is evidence of the power of God. This message did not appeal to the wisdom of men. In fact, it was crafted so that it would not appeal to the wisdom of men. And that was God's plan from the start. He quotes here from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. And if you go back to that part of Isaiah, you find Isaiah declaring that God's marvelous plan of salvation for Israel, his plan to redeem his own people eventually, is going to be done in such a way that it will negate any wisdom, any cleverness in the nation of Israel. That he will take the message of salvation, he's going to wrap it in such foolishness that it will nullify the thought that they arrived at that truth through their own wisdom. Because human wisdom would lead you away from the message of the gospel, not toward it. And in fact, that has happened. Look at the next part, chapter 1, 20 through 24. Paul says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a Jew, to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul asks rhetorically, where are the wise men? Where are the scribes? Where are the debaters? 
Did the world's wise men reason their way to the message of salvation? Did they discover through their own intellect? Did they deconstruct the fact of man's sin and the misery that it brings and the need for a savior? No. Did scribes, these are the men who like to write things, did the scribes come to understand the need for a perfect Messiah that had to die in their place through all of their writing? Did they search the scriptures? Did they realize Jesus was that Messiah? No, they didn't do that. And how about the great orators of Greek society? Did they sit and discuss among themselves how to arrive at the confession of faith that leads to salvation? Did they work out those words in their own conversations? Did anyone in Corinth with any of the many ways of Greek society, reason their way to what now Paul was delivering? Did any of them on their own work their way to the gospel, to the one thing that saves? No, none of them did it. The people of Greece remained lost and perishing. And it wasn't for a lack of effort. I mean, if you know anything about Greek society, they were famous for their pursuit of truth through these means, through things like oratory and through debate and through writing and through seeking wisdom and so on. This was their hobby, If anyone in the world could have found Christ through those methods, they would have done it. But they didn't. And so Paul asks, where did all their efforts lead them? Nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. And the wisdom of the world has not arrived at the knowledge of God truly. They've arrived at something. They've arrived at Buddha. They've arrived at Islam. They've arrived at Taoism. They've arrived at Mormonism. They've arrived at a hundred other things, thousand other things. But none of those things are the saving message of the gospel. Proof that you cannot get there by the wisdom of men. Paul says in verse 21, God was well pleased, pay attention to that word, well pleased to remain outside the reach of men who were searching for him by their own power. I imagine someone who's standing in a totally dark room and another person comes into the room searching for that person and is blindly groping around in the space. And according to Paul's words, God was well pleased to stay out of their reach. To never let them find him because they weren't capable in their own power. Because that's not the way salvation was going to be made possible for men. Isn't that counter to what we sometimes hear with respect to God? There's a a sense out there that says God is just waiting for someone to find him. That he stands up in heaven with the offer of who he is and he's just dying for someone to take the free gift of salvation. This one verse, these two verses stand opposed to that view. God is not waiting for us, for we will not find him, for he is well pleased to stay out of our reach if we seek him in our own power by our own wisdom. And in the meantime, God chooses to reveal himself to men, but he does it in a way designed to mock the wisdom of men. He says, I'm going to create a message no one in their right mind would like or would agree with. And then I'm going to send that message out into the world. And then I'm going to determine who will receive it. And as those who are called receive it, there'll be no way. For us to attribute that outcome to anything else other than the power of God. No man's going to share the limelight with the Lord. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we will have to admit that when we first heard the gospel, it was probably a little silly. It sounded a little weird. And in fact, I know in my own case, and I've heard this from others, that at first time we may have accepted it even, we felt a little hesitation because the, the whole thing was a bit embarrassing. Maybe even wondered if we were just kind of going along because everybody else was doing it or because our parents wanted us to do it or because it just seemed like the thing we're supposed to do when we come to church. Maybe our spouse was pressuring us. Who knows? But at the same time, it started to ring true in a way that we had not experienced before. And then it, as it grew and as we get baptized and as we take steps that come with faith, we begin to recognize what's really true in our hearts. Paul says, you know what? When you see that pattern, you know what you're watching? The power of God. 
Paul says the world will not find God. The Jews are seeking for him because they look for signs. This is a very interesting dichotomy between Jews and Greeks. The Jews, they knew to look for something. They had heard they needed a Messiah. They knew about sin. They had the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. They knew that there was a promise of a Messiah. They knew he would show up one day. And so for the Jew, the concept that God would offer a way of salvation was not news. When it showed up, though, in the face of Christ, they were skeptical. They demanded signs. They wanted to know if this was truly the one who was promised. And, of course, nothing Jesus did satisfied their skepticism. And then when he says the Greeks, on the other hand, that's a way of saying all Gentiles. The Greeks of the world, they knew nothing of the coming Messiah. They weren't even aware that they were supposed to be looking for one. Instead, they confronted every new spiritual theory with the same kind of desire for convincing argument. That's why you see Paul when he walks into Athens going to the Areopolis and he talks to all these men and they just want to debate and debate and debate. They just want to tear theory apart and see if anything can stand in the face of their criticism. And Paul's message, of course, was foolish, so it didn't appeal to them for very long, as was designed. So Paul says to a world that's seeking proofs or wisdom, God has been determined to go out with a message of a convicted killer on a Roman cross. For the Jew, this was a stumbling block, he says, because they were looking for a Messiah. They just weren't looking for Jesus. He didn't quite fit the image they had in mind. And when he landed on a Roman cross, they said, well, that can't be our guy. And he became a stumbling block. Then for the Gentile, the claims of Christianity were ridiculous. They find nothing appealing in a message that demands repentance and submission to a dead criminal, as they might see him. And so they mock the faith of Christians. And the Lord says, that's exactly what I expected. That's exactly what I wanted. It's foolishness so that no man may take credit on the day they believe it. To the one seeking wisdom and truth, you find it. To the one seeking signs of power and wonder, he says, you'll find it. To the Jew, he says, and to the Greek, by the power of God, you'll find what you're looking for in the gospel. The Jews wanted signs of God's power. Well, if you come to faith in this foolish message, you will see a cold, dead heart coming to life. You will see power of the spirit. You will see spiritual wonders in the gifts. You'll see prayers answered. You'll see wounds healed. You'll see change in your life that's evidence of God's power. And if you're the Greek and you want wisdom and you come to believe in this foolish message, you're going to learn the mysteries of the depths of God's wisdom in his word. You're going to come to understand the power of sin and the enemy and the redemptive power of Christ and the plan for the future in the face of Christ's return and of great things yet to come and marvels that no eye has seen. That's the wisdom that awaits you if you believe in the gospel. So here's the irony. The world wants to find God by looking for power and wisdom. God is offering them power and wisdom but doing so in a form of a foolish message that appears powerless. So only those who are called, Paul says, will receive it. And so the only explanation in the case of Corinth for why any of them have believed this message is that God did a work in their hearts, not Paul, not Apollos, not Peter, not any man. That's the definition of grace. Unmerited favor. That we came to faith in a foolish message that God designed to reveal his power. Heavenly Father, Father, thank you that we were called to believe in a foolish message. Father, I confess that even I, as someone who studies the Bible and endeavors to teach it, even I, Father, catch myself in a spirit of self-congratulation, of 
looking upon my wisdom and upon my sensibility because I came to believe in the gospel. And I confess, Father, that that leads me into an attitude of haughtiness at times with others. Looking down my nose at those who would reject this foolish message as if I have a greater capacity than they to suggest that it is something I did that that distinguishes me from them. And at times, Father, in that recognition, I come to see how cold I can be toward unbelievers and how easily I may overlook the opportunity to preach the gospel because I have seen in them something that tells me they couldn't accept it, forgetting that I couldn't either. None of us can. I pray, Father, that in hearing Paul's words again in chapter 1, I would remember and that we would all take to heart that it is the power of God that saves, that the word is supposed to be rejected and sound foolish so that when it is made true, we know it was you. We can have confidence, Father, that if you are at work, as you say you are, then we can preach the most foolish of messages and we will see a result when it is according to your will and we can have confidence to do so, never afraid of a rejection, just anticipating the opportunity to see you at work. Give us courage to speak. Don't let us dress it up. Don't let us void, make void the cross, Father. Let us be consistent in that respect. But, but still, let us have an expectation that you didn't send us out to frustrate our efforts. You didn't call us to preach so that no one would hear. You didn't deliver your son without an expectation of saving those who he came for. So give us Confidence, Father, give us courage. Thank you, Father, for the patience and the attentiveness of those in here tonight, today. And I pray we would continue, continue to be here, continue to hear, and continue to obey. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.